Hey, it's Scott Walker here, and you can't recall courage. Thanks for joining us on our weekly podcast, and welcome to 2020. Yeah, it's been quite a year. 2019 was pretty amazing. Chance for Tenet and I to start out in a brand new home in downtown Milwaukee, close to our sons, Matt and Alex. Matt's over at Platform Digital. Alex is running the re-election campaign for Congressman Brian Style, and close to family and friends. We had a, a great time traveling around the country and really around the world. Made a return visit to Israel with Young Israel and Thanks to Dennis, uh, to uh, Dr. Frager, and to uh, all the good, John Birkin, and all the other great folks who were part of that trip. We look forward to going back to Israel. We traveled across the country from one end of this great nation to the other, talking about the need for a balanced budget amendment. We'll be back in a few weeks in South Carolina and to other states later this year, certainly with $23 trillion in national debt and $30 trillion just a few years away. It's time for an intervention. You know, if we were as I've said before, I had a family member or a friend who was making forty-six grand a year with $300,000 of debt, and every penny they were borrowing was going to pay off not the principal but the interest on the debt, we'd have an intervention, particularly if that friend or family member was actually spending more than the $46,000 a year they made and only adding to the debt. That's what's happening to the federal government. Clearly, Democrat and Republican alike, they've shown in Congress, they really don't have the ability to fix this on their own. That's why we need a balanced budget amendment. And thankfully, the founders gave us the tools to do that by allowing the states to initiate and, and then ultimately ratifying an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So we'll be back on the trails. We have been this year in places like South Carolina, Idaho, Minnesota, Virginia, and Kentucky talking about the need for a balanced budget amendment and the need for state lawmakers to step up and, and lead the way. We've been working with the National Republican Redistricting Trust to counter Eric Holder's uh, efforts, really quite successful efforts through the work he's been doing in political campaigns to elect justices and judges that look favorably towards Democrat gerrymandering. Uh, they've been able to have an impact on as many as 27 seats in the U.S. House just this last year and a year plus ago now in 2018. Republicans need to wake up. We can't just uh, assume that uh, because we play the by the rules, they will. Not suggesting we don't play by the rules, but we need to be aggressive in pushing back. People like Eric Holder and his cronies are trying to undo the work that's been done over the past decade to put in place constitutionally strong, concise, uh, legislative and congressional districts that maintain communities of interest. Uh, what they really want to do is stated clearly in their form with the IRS, which says they want to, their mission statement is simple. They want to give uh, Democrats uh, a leg up uh, when it comes to redistricting, not only looking post-2020 after the census, but even in trying to undo some of the things that have been done over the past decade involved in the National Taxpayers Union. They're pushed not only to protect taxpayers when it comes to tax-specific issues, but to keep taxpayers from being gouged by unrealistic regulations and taking away the freedoms and liberties we hold dear. For years, 50 years to be exact, they've been the stalwart of doing that in our nation's capital. And now, over the past year, we've been helping people like former U.S. Senate candidate and state Senator Leah Vukmir and her team with what's called the Cornerstone Project, which is a way of taking the National Taxpayers Union and making them effective not only in our nation's capital, but in all 50 of our state capitals. Because taxpayers need a friend and a lobbyist in the best sense of the word, someone lobbying on their behalf in every state capital as well as our nation's capital. We've been happy to do uh, this weekly podcast as well as uh, delve a little bit into uh, the world of media. 
uh, writing a column each Friday for the Washington Times, talking about common sense conservative values and ideas, and occasionally filling in on Newstalk 1130 WISN for Mark Belling and other commentators on that radio show. I've been pleased to be over the past year many TV appearances on Fox and Fox Business, occasionally on CNBC and other networks out there. And we look forward to doing that in the coming year. And of course, I really enjoy the chance to be a partner with Worldwide Speakers Group, joining other featured speakers like Newt Ginrich and Sean Spicer, General Kelly and others. Travel the nation. It's, it's been tremendous a chance to speak as part of political activities, as part of conservative think tanks. We've been at uh, business conferences and seminars, spoke at nonprofit events, prayer breakfast. Uh, you name it, we've, we've been a part of speaking to just about everything out there. And we look forward to many more exciting engagements in, in the year to come. Knowing that one of the things I enjoyed most about being governor was traveling and, and talking, not just giving the same stump speech, but talking about a variety of ideas. And in 2020, clearly we'll be talking a lot about the presidential and other elections, but from a different perspective. Sometimes it'll be about politics and speaking to the faithful. Other times it might be to business or nonprofit groups wondering what the future might hold and what the impact might be, particularly uh, coming from a battleground state. And of course, politically staying engaged. I'm pleased to be the finance chairman for the president and vice president's reelection in Wisconsin to, to help the state party and to help the Republican Governors Association. Uh, I've said for years that uh, state leaders, particularly governors, are the most important positions in all. It's, it's what our founders set up the Constitution to protect our state's rights because the states were where things actually happen, where you can actually connect with your governor and your state lawmakers. So a lot of exciting things have happened over 2019, plus a lot of just fun. You know, it's been nice to live near our kids and near our family. Uh, my mom, after my dad passed away in October of 2018, it was nice to be close to her and spend a good chunk of this past year with her and my brother and my brother's family, my nieces Isabella and Eva and sister-in-law Maria, other cousins and family and and uh, extended family and a lot of great friends. You know, whether it's going to Bucks games with the Bucks ideally headed towards hopefully the first national championships since Lou Alcindor was Lou Alcindor and not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar leading the Milwaukee Bucks in 1971. Now with Giannis hopefully doing the same. Looking for an exciting season with the Milwaukee Brewers and going to games throughout the summer at Miller Park. Uh, at the Pfizer Forum, not only seeing Bucks games, but Marquette games. It's been fun to go with family and friends there as well and making our way up to Lambeau Field for the Green Bay Packers, which hopefully a week from this coming weekend, they'll be back on track for yet another successful playoff season on their way to bring it home the Vince Lombardi Trophy after winning the Super Bowl. One can certainly hope. Well, a lot of exciting things going on. Tonette and I have had a chance to go to Summerfest to see groups like, or performances like Lionel Richie and Foreigner and Billy Joel and to go see Hamilton down in Chicago and, and now more recently here in Milwaukee to travel around and do things that we really just didn't have the time or the opportunity to do before as well as doing some things on our own, like me going out with friends and charity events on my 2003 anniversary edition, Harley-Davidson Road King. Look forward to exciting things in the future. When we come back, I want to talk a, a little bit, uh, make a shift from 2019 and what's happened over the past year to talk about my predictions for what I believe is going to happen in 2020, particularly when it comes to the presidential elections and the race for who's going to be in control of the House and the Senate. We'll be right back. Hey, Scott Walker, back here on You Can't Recall Courage, our weekly podcast. And 
I think I misspoke. I think I said 2018. We're already looking ahead to elections in 2020. And right around the corner, uh, a month from today, is the Iowa caucus. Uh, in fact, uh, between Iowa and New Hampshire, I think this is the first time since 1992, at least amongst Democrats, that you had four candidates polling at or above 15 percent uh, this close to the caucus and, and primary kickoff. So you've got uh, the Iowa caucuses on the third. You've got the next week, New Hampshire. About a week and a half after that, you've got caucus, a caucus in Nevada. And then the following Saturday, you've got a primary in South Carolina. And then after that, you've got the, uh, the big Super Tuesday where you've got multiple states, including big states like California. So what's going to happen? Well, as it stands right now, I think Mayor Pete's on his way, or former mayor, his term ended January 1st, so just this week. <coughs> mayor Pete, I think, is on his way to, to pick up a victory in Iowa. That may seem odd for those who haven't been to Iowa, but remember back in 2008, another Midwesterner, a guy who some people, at least some pundits, thought couldn't win, didn't have enough experience, uh, thought in this case because of his race, maybe that would be a factor in a a small to mid-sized Midwestern state, but that's just not the case. Voters rallied to the side of Barack Obama. It was the start of a big, uh, a big shift in momentum and ultimately a move towards him not only being the nominee, but obviously the president, a two-term president for Barack Obama. I think the same thing can happen with Mayor Pete. Uh, he's got a, a sound grassroots organization. He's got a clean, crisp message. He comes across as being a little bit more center, not certainly a moderate, but a little bit left of center as opposed to some of the other candidates who are on the far, far extreme of the party. I think that's a big deal for the kind of people who, who come out in the cold of winter uh, to uh, you know high school auditoriums and uh, church basements and other places. They hold caucus meetings in Iowa. Uh, not to mention, I, I think there's a fair amount of enthusiasm. He's bringing in good money, although certainly not as much as Bernie Sanders and clearly not as much as the president. Uh, but for someone in his position, he's in pretty good shape grassroots makes a, a big deal difference in a state like Iowa. And I think there's enough uh, other votes being pulled away that it, there's no one clear contrast. You've got uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, all kind of polling as they are in New Hampshire. But I think Mayor Pete wins in Iowa. I think it's going to be close in New Hampshire, where they're all four pretty tight. But I, I think in the end, it probably, as it will be in, Wisconsin, in, uh, in Iowa with a fellow Midwesterner, I think you're going to have someone from the Northeast winning. So you've got Bernie Sanders in Vermont and Elizabeth Warren, obviously, in Massachusetts. One of those two wins New Hampshire. I'm saying in the end, I think push comes to shove. Bernie Sanders has got a, uh, a better base. He's been there more frequently. He's more established. And I think they increasingly are, are raising questions about Elizabeth Warren, about uh, whether or not she's the real deal or all these different examples of her making things up. And I think once she started putting numbers to some of the plans, like the government-run health care, uh, you started to see uh, voters uh, overall, but particularly uh, primary and caucus voters, pushing back a little bit on that. So I think Bernie wins in New Hampshire. Then Joe Biden's in a must-win situation. And good for him that he seems to be far ahead in Nevada. So he probably ends up picking that up. And then South Carolina, for him, is just the must-win. He's in good shape. I, I think it will tighten, uh, but the last one of the last polls I show, saw showed that uh, the former vice president is up by about 20 points overall, and amongst African-American voters, uh, he's up by over 
which again, logically doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And a really old white guy uh, from the Northeast, but uh, that's the benefit of having been connected uh, with uh, former President uh, Barack Obama. I, I think he uh, the, the race will tighten there, but he'll ultimately prevail, and that'll just keep things going. In fact, it's, it's been interesting to see the difference between billionaires. Uh, of course, as Mayor Pete pointed out, one of those debates, it's a stage filled overwhelmingly with millionaires and billionaires. So for all the talk about beating up on the, uh, the millionaires and billionaires, in fact, even AOC was kind of exposed when uh, it was brought to attention the fact that Tom Steyer actually gave her money uh, in her congressional campaign. But that aside, Steyer uh, is a millionaire spending a lot of money but trying to win in the early states. And that just doesn't work. You know, I've been there. I've seen those states. I've talked to governors from those states, uh, Kim Reynolds and Chris Sununu are good friends of mine there. Uh, we can see you know, just what happens in those early states. And it's really a very retail state. Those voters want to see and touch and feel the candidates. They want to know them. They get offended if they haven't met them multiple times. So trying to get the perception even of trying to buy the election doesn't go well. So Steyer, I think, is just blowing his millions. On the other hand, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, the former Republican, former independent, now for the moment Democrat, <laughs> yeah, he uh, it's a joke in of itself, uh, particularly the other day when I had to laugh when his big thing was he was going to you know, fill the East Wing with cubicles uh, somehow and seat himself in the middle there uh, like he apparently has done with his businesses in the past. If that's his big idea, I, I think he's uh, in for trouble. But I don't think he is because I think that isn't his only idea. And I think more specifically, where he does well is on Super Tuesday. So you got multiple states. One in particular I want to hone in on. California. California has more delegates up on that one day. Uh, actually, more delegates, not just in all four states, all four early states combined, actually about double, uh, more than double all four of those states combined. So. That's one of those where those other states, those candidates, a number of them have to do well in just to keep fundraising and momentum going. Bloomberg, on the other hand, can just keep shilling up more money. Uh, he's got the money. He doesn't need to worry about this uh, in terms of financing things. So I think he will do well in a state like California. I've seen the ads here in Wisconsin. I saw the ads uh, a few weeks back when I was in Florida. He's clearly focused and concentrating, and I think a pretty good strategy. You know, unlike uh, another former New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, in 2008, his strategy was to wait till Florida as well. The problem was he didn't have the fundraising capacity or the ability to self-fund like Bloomberg can. And so by the time they got there, all the momentum had kind of washed out. Bloomberg, on the other hand, is spending like no one else we've seen before, at least amongst Democrats. And I don't think he wins. I just can't fathom that this electorate that is so worked up against the so-called wealthy out there is going to uh, put a billionaire up as their as their stalwart. But having said that, I do think he can mess things up. And I still don't think it's likely. I don't think it's completely absurd to think that there's at least the possibility that coming into the convention a few blocks from where I'm recording this podcast, uh, that's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, over at the Fiserv Forum, that indeed Democrats could, again, I'm not saying it happens for sure, but I think they could uh, have a contested contest coming into the convention. In the end, a lot of things can change between now and then, but I'm still putting my money on Bernie Sanders. I, I think he, uh, having run before, having a consistent message, 
having been the real deal, it's the only thing I'll give him credit for. I think his ideas are completely backwards. I think they would take this nation and the world in exactly the wrong direction. And I think we've seen example after example after example of the failures of socialism, most notably right now in places where, like uh, Venezuela, where, where Maduro is just savaging a uh, once very prosperous nation. And it's a total disgrace to see what they're doing there. Uh, we can see time and time again these socialist ideas do not work, uh, despite what the polling shows, particularly amongst young people. H having said that, though, I, I think amongst the Democrat primary and caucus goers, he still has a strong appeal, and he is authentic. He, he's the real deal. He actually believes it. Uh, again, I think he's wrong, but he believes it. Uh, I think, uh, having said all that, uh, I think uh, Donald Trump, no surprise, is going to be unconventional. Uh, what has he done recently that hasn't been unconventional? But I, I think unlike the, the past practice of laying relatively low during the other party's convention, I think he's going to have big rallies. In fact, I wouldn't be shocked if he had a big rally somewhere in southeastern Wisconsin uh, during the same week that the Democrats are holding their convention uh, in the state of Wisconsin. I just don't find that to, to be shocking to think that he might do that. And for him, uh, I got to say, and this might be overstating the obvious, but this guy does a, a better job defining his opposition than anyone I've seen in my lifetime in politics. And so if going into the convention here in Milwaukee, Bernie Sanders is the nominee, or even if it's contested and Bernie comes out as the nominee, I think President Donald Trump is going to spend that week and the time between then and the November election pounding on this guy and reminding Americans of the simple truth that people like Mayor Pete and uh, U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar and others who are not quite as radical as Sanders and, and Warren and others are, um, and that is reminding them that as many as 180 million Americans will lose their private health care coverage. So if you like your health care, if you don't want the government-run system that we've seen failing in so many other ways, if you don't want health care to be run like some of the problems we've seen with agencies like the U.S. Postal Service, well, I think a lot of people will be turned off when they realize that. As, as great as it sounds to say we want to make sure that everyone's covered with health care, there are better, uh, better ways to do that than having the government take it over better ways to make sure that we care for those who truly need our help and our assistance. And I think Donald Trump is just going to pound on that. Combine that with two other things I think are going to be significant. I think the economy continues to grow. I think we're going to see unemployment uh, continue to drop. I think it actually is going to drop below the all-time low. It's the lowest right now we've seen since December of 1969, so roughly a 50-year low. I think wages are going to go up. I think we're going to see average household income reach the highest levels it's ever been. And when people have more money in their pocket, when their family and their kids can find jobs, when we see growing prosperity, I think that's a good thing for anyone at any time when they're president. That's particularly going to be true with this president. Combined with the fact that I expect this president to not only push back against Democrats, I, I think in light of how out of control Nancy Pelosi and the House uh, Democrats have been on impeachment, I expect him to push back hard against the Congress itself. Look for things like, remember, I, I mentioned this actually when I myself was running for president years ago. One of the things I thought was if you want repeal and replace, I suggested that the very first month I was in office, I'd start the very first day uh, to eliminate the exemption uh, that was granted under President Barack Obama. I would have done it day one, but I, I, I think actually you're going to see the president do that later this year. And the pushback on that, I think you shouldn't just stop on Obamacare. I, I think any exceptions are given. 
Uh, I think the American people, Republican or Democrat alike, think it's crazy. It's crazy that members of Congress don't have to abide by the laws that the rest of us do. Um, he should remove that exemption and make the House and the Senate and their families and their staff have to have the same health care uh, that everybody else has to under Obamacare. Boy, you want to talk about moving quickly to repeal and replace Obamacare with something that's more market-driven, that puts patients back in charge of the decisions and not the government? Boy, that would be a huge move. Add to that any number of other bogus exemptions they've been given to the laws that we have to live by. And I would add to that, I would not be completely shocked if, if uh, Donald Trump tried to do through an executive order uh, push in place term limits, something that I've talked about for decades, uh, something that I live by myself. To me, I don't think anyone should be in office any more than 12 years. Uh, most of the offices I held in the past were, were eight to 10 years or less. I don't think it should be any, anyone should be any one office for more than 12 years. After that, even in the private sector, you start to get complacent. And I think if the president pushes back, that would be one more way to truly drain the swamp. Some friends of ours were talking with us the other day about this, and, and uh, one of our friends, she said, you know, um, she voted for Trump because she hated Hillary, but she didn't like the way the president talked and tweeted, and she was up in the air, but she said, these were her words, she said, you know, but if he does that against Congress, that will push my button, and that's exactly what would get me to vote for him again. So I wouldn't be shocked to see if the president doesn't do that. So I think the president's on the way towards reelection. I think if he performs well, I think he not only keep Republicans in charge of the United States Senate, I think there'll be a new U.S. senator in Alabama, which gives a little breathing room, uh, a lot of other close races in uh, North Carolina and Arizona and Colorado uh, as examples out there. But I think ultimately Republicans hold the United States Senate. And I think there's a real chance, particularly with the way that Nancy Pelosi and her allies have overreached with impeachment, there's a real chance that Kevin McCarthy a year from now will be the incoming speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. I think they pick up uh, races uh, in seats they lost in places like California and New York, Texas, Iowa, and other states where Democrat members of Congress won making the argument that they were going to put the country ahead of the party, uh, that they were going to get the job done. Uh, you look a year and a half later, they haven't. They've failed. All they seem to be do is obsessed and focused on impeachment. And I think that turns off not only voters overall, but particularly for independent swing voters who are going to be the key in these key legislative districts across the country. So I think Republicans will do well uh, this coming November. I think the president, vice president, get reelected. I think the Senate goes Republican, and I think it's very likely the House of Representatives goes Republican as well. I think there's at least one, maybe two states that will uh, switch from Democrat to Republican governors. But I do have a big warning sign for races that most Republicans, most conservatives don't pay attention to, and that is statewide and local judicial races. Again, Eric Holder, the former Obama attorney general, is out there aggressively working to try and stack the deck when it comes to gerrymandering after redistricting, and even gerrymandering in the courts now per the last redistricting process. And so as much as we can have big wins when it comes to the president, the House, the Senate, even governor's races across the country, we've got to be vigilant when it comes to Supreme Court races like the one for Dan Kelly here in the state of Wisconsin coming up in the spring of 2020. So a lot on our plate. We'll be talking more about this in the future, giving you updates. Uh, I hope you have a, I hope you had a, a wonderful New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. 
And I look ahead, uh, wishing you and your family a very safe and prosperous 2020. And uh, until our next podcast, keep fighting for freedom. I'm Scott Walker.